Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, let's go to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are there on the chair racks in front of you. And if you do not know where to find things in the Bible, that is okay. Uh, you can find this uh, psalm on page 519 of the uh, Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. And if you would like to take that Bible home with you, congratulations, it is yours. We've got plenty and we can restock, but we want to make sure everyone has a copy of God's Word. Before we get started today, I just want to uh, say how good it is to be back uh, with you, how good it is to have the opportunity to uh, preach to you this morning. I have this weird thing whenever I'm gone on vacation for even one week. Uh, I have this fear that when I come back, I will not know how to preach anymore. And I'm, I'm not kidding. <laughs> so you can imagine what three months feels like. <clears throat> so we will find out together whether I need to go back to school or not. Uh, there are all, all kinds of things that I could say this morning, all th- kinds of things that I could share with you. Uh, hopefully, I will have opportunities in the ne- next few days in weeks and months to share what God has been doing in my heart and in my family's heart. But the thing that I really want to just take the time to do this morning is to say thank you. Uh, I want to express my gratitude to you for, on behalf of my family for allowing us to go on a sabbatical. We recognize that uh, this is something that not everyone has the opportunity to do. Uh, it is a privilege, and we tried to make good use of that privilege um, there is a lot, a lot of time to pray, uh, to read, to study, to write in ways that really I have never been able to do in my life. And so we come back uh, refreshed, uh, restored, uh, and refreshed and restored in a way that it's, we're not ready to jump right back into doing everything the way that we were doing it before and run ourselves ragged so that we can do this again in a few years. Uh, but so that we can live and work and be in a a new and healthier way. And so I know many of you have contributed uh, to keeping everything going. Uh, If there's one thing that's that's been shown to us over these three months, it's how little you actually need me. You guys did great. Uh, But thank you for letting my key still work in the lock and for the privilege to preach to you this morning. Psalm 131 is going to be the text that we look at together today, but before we get there, I want to ask you the question that you do not need to answer out loud, Uh, but I want to ask you this question. What did you listen to on the way to church this morning? Did you catch up on your favorite podcast that you've been behind on? Did you listen to the radio? I don't know if anybody listens to the radio anymore as far as music is concerned. I guess the radio is still happening, uh, but most of us want to listen to the songs we want to listen to in the order we want to listen to them. Um, But maybe you listen to the radio. Maybe you were listening to sports radio, and you were being pumped up again because every season for the Jags, before a game has been played, seems filled with so much promise. So much promise that is immediately dashed. And they're my team, okay? I say that loving them. Maybe you listen to the news 
on the way here, and you came in by finding out already what's going on or what that other party is doing, and you, you're already, your, your meter of anger is up to here before you've even walked through the doors. Maybe there was an argument in your car, maybe one that you participated in. Maybe you're one of those rare breed that 10 and 2, stone cold silence the whole way. I don't know what you listen to, but we provide a playlist each week at CBC, not only with the songs that we sing throughout the course of a year as a church, but the songs that we'll be singing together, particularly on this day. And there's a variety of reasons why we do that. One is just for familiarity. Uh, We want you to be able to participate, to, to feel like you have a chance to learn the songs so that you can sing out and participate in that aspect of our worship services. We also provide that playlist because what we engage ourselves with, our, our bodies, our, our hearts, our minds, our souls, what we engage ourselves with, what we listen to prepares us and even shapes us for what we're about to do together. Now, the people of Israel, when this psalm was written and using it in the years following, did not have Spotify, I don't think. I'm no historian. They didn't even have record players, so they couldn't make themselves playlists. But they did have a playlist of sorts which could be sung on the way to worship. These songs are called the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms of Ascent, and you can find the Psalms of Ascent in your Bible, in the book of Psalms, they cover Psalms 120 to 134, 15 Psalms of Ascent, and through uh, tradition and history, many people believe that, that these Psalms were used as people, the people of God would return to Jerusalem sometimes three times a year for the big three feasts and festivals that they would have. Remember, not everybody lives in Jerusalem, but there are these feasts and these festivals where God's people gather, and so they make that pilgrimage from all kinds of places towards Jerusalem to observe these festivals in their religious calendar. And they were called Psalms of Ascent because As you moved towards Jerusalem, as you moved towards the temple, you were ascending. So, Psalms of Ascent, you're ascending, you're moving upward. Throughout the Old Testament, the the temple is referred to as, as being God's holy hill. It's referred to as being the mountain of God. We we ascend up as we move towards the temple. And many people believe that both the pilgrims and the priests would would sing these psalms, would recite these psalms as they ascended to meet with God. I want to look at one of these psalms together this morning. It summarizes several of the themes that God has been pressing into my heart these past few months. It is a psalm that is presumably written by David himself. It's short, just three verses. One of my children asked me if I would have enough material to work with, and I said, oh yes, (laughs) 
I can, I can do it. And then I even went long in the first service. I, was, I even thought, I'm going to give them a, a treat, I'm going to go short, and I went long. So I'm going to try better in the second. But this psalm just has three verses, and I'd like us to read it together as we begin. Psalm 131, verses 1 to 3, the word of the Lord says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. In this brief psalm, the first two verses are addressed to the Lord. Verse 1, the first two words, O Lord. These first two verses of this psalm are intensely personal in their address to the Lord. And we're going to spend the vast majority of our time this morning meditating on these two verses before we get to the third verse, which changes the direction of the address because the first two words of verse 3 are, O Israel. So the first two directed at the Lord, the second two an exhortation to Israel, and by extension, the people of God when singing this are exhorting each other in what is said in verse 3. There is a connection, I believe, in this psalm between the two themes of humility, in verses 1 and 2, and hope, in verse 3. And so I'd like to spend some time thinking about these verses and that connection this morning. First of all, I want us to see in these first two verses what I'm going to refer to as the calm of humility. The calm of humility. David begins the psalm by stating that his heart is not lifted up, his eyes are not raised too high. Both of these are biblical phrases that are used to describe pride. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, if you're familiar with the stories that occur in the book of Daniel, you might remember Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is strolling across the roof of his palace, looking out at all the things that he has made, looking at the greatness of his kingdom, that he is the, basically the unquestioned monarch of the known world. And while he's doing that, he starts kind of feeling himself. Look what I've done. I'm amazing. And he is immediately cursed by God. He goes temporarily insane. These magnificent hanging gardens that have been made, one of the wonders of the ancient world, he is now on on all fours in those gardens, grazing like he's some sort of, of cow. Daniel refers to his heart being lifted up in pride. 
These aren't necessarily phrases that we use, but we have similar phrases when we don't necessarily say our eyes are lifted up too high, but we do talk about looking down our noses at other people as an expression of our pride. Now, this ought to be particularly striking for us, these statements, considering who is uttering these words. King David, whom we might expect to be one of the most out-of-touch people with a common person, writes words that everyone can identify with. King David might be forgiven a bit for raising his eyes a little high. After all, he's the king who's been hand-selected by God to rule God's people. After all, he is a man who possesses every single status symbol that a person could possibly possess. He has prosperity. He has power. He has prestige. He has property. He has everything. And this is the man that goes to worship God and says, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. And then in the second part of the verse, he goes on to explain a little bit of why he has adopted this humble attitude. In the second half of verse 1, he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Now, he never gets around in this psalm to telling us what exactly he has in mind And he says that I don't occupy myself with things that are too great or too marvelous for me. But at the very least, this is a statement of humility, is it not? David is recognizing that he is finite. Though he is God's chosen monarch, though he is the king and leader of the people, he is also recognizing that he is a man who possesses limitations that he is limited in both ability and knowledge. There are things that are beyond him. Now again, the psalm does not specify exactly what he has in mind, but remember the context of this psalm. God's people gathering, ascending for worship. And so certainly one of the things that we'd be included in this category is God Himself. There are things about the God we gather to worship this morning that are too great and too marvelous for us to comprehend. Now, if anyone might have an excuse to be presumptuous in their relationship with God, once again, it might be David. Consider the things that God has said to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes a covenant with David. And one of the things that God says to David is, says, I'm going to make your name great. Does your, could your ego bear the weight of that promise? I'm going to tell you right now, mine could not. Okay, I can, I can barely handle a little bit. Much less God coming to me and saying, I'm going to make your name great. 
God also tells him that his, his throne is going to continue forever when he makes that covenant with him. David is the person that both the Old and New Testaments say is a man after God's own heart. If anyone could be presumptuous in their relationship with God and say, well, you know him, but you don't, you don't know him like I do. If anyone had the right to be presumptuous, it might have been David. And yet we see David saying, I don't occupy myself with things that are too great and too marvelous for me. David has expressed this kind of idea even more directly in other places. In Psalm 139, which is a familiar psalm to many of us, it's, it's a meditation on how thoroughly God knows him. He, he says, you, you know my, my rising up and my, my going to bed. I can't descend into the furthest far part of the sea or the, the furthest reach of the heavens without you knowing I'm there. You, you hem me in behind and before you, almost saying you corner me. He says that you know my thoughts before I speak them. In fact, you know the words that I'm going to speak before they even tumble out of my mouth. And when he's, when he's reflecting on these realities about God, he stops in verse 6 and says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The prophet Isaiah said something similar in chapter 40 and verse 28 when he says that God's understanding is unsearchable. This reality that we're talking about here is something that, the, that theologians have given a, a term for. It's the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. The incomprehensibility of God. The Bible tells us that there are two seemingly contradictory things that are true at the same time. On the one hand, the Bible tells us that you can know God. And you can have a genuine knowledge of God. Not only can you know God, but it's God's expressed desire that you know Him. I mean, John tells us in 1 John, I'm writing these things so that you may what? Know. I'm writing these things so that you may know. Jesus himself said that he wanted us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay, there are truths about God that God wants us to know and that can be known. Now, there are theologians and philosophers who have who have said that God is so incomprehensible that there is no connection point between the finite and the infinite. There's, we really have no contact point with God. But the Bible itself tells us that that's not the case, that the God who created us in His image has built into His image bearers the ability to receive knowledge about Him so that He can be known. That's something that's true. But there's something else that's true at the same time, and it's this. There is so much about God that we don't know. And when I say that there is so much about God that we don't know, I am not just talking about information about Him. 
There is no way finite beings, limited beings like you and I could handle, you can't even talk about it this way, the statements of fact about an infinite being. I, I don't know how to say that because I can only use the language of limitation. But even if somehow you could receive more information about God, God still remains beyond your full comprehension. Even if you could have all those pieces of information, you would never be able to consider them or understand how they're all related. We know that God is infinite, right? Explain infinity. Well, it's, it's having no beginning and no end. Okay, but do you understand it? Have you ever stopped and thought about a being who has no beginning? That's always been. We make Trinitarian formulations that there is one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and volume after volume after volume has been written on that fact, but the truth of the matter is you don't really comprehend the Trinity. There are so many things about God that we don't know, even some things that we have wrong. We don't like to think about that because we'd like to believe that we got it. Centuries of church history have led to my knowledge. Congratulations. Sometimes the more you come to know God, the more you realize that there are just some things that are are too great. Thomas Aquinas is recognized by many as one of the leading thinkers of the Middle Ages. He wrote in the 1200s, he was nicknamed by his classmates at college the dumb ox. And that was not a term of endearment. He was nicknamed the dumb ox due to his appearance and his mannerisms. But Thomas Aquinas was a prolific and brilliant scholar, even if we wouldn't agree with all of his formulations. He wrote many things, one of which was called the Summa Theologica. You can still buy the Summa. It's five volumes. And there are scholars to this day, almost a thousand years later, that have dedicated their entire academic careers to studying Aquinas' thought. But Aquinas reported having a vision, and after that vision, he laid down his pen and never picked it up again. The interesting thing about the Summa, in five volumes, which you can still purchase today, is that it is unfinished. The people around him implored him to take up his pen and write again. They asked him why he was not finishing it, and he replied this way, I can write no more. All that I have written seems like straw. One of the most brilliant minds of his day wrote five volumes to arrive at a perspective David arrived at in one verse. (laughs) Some things are just too great for me. That does not mean there was no value in his work or the work of any other theologians that because we can't know everything, it doesn't matter, we can know nothing. 
we ought to have a sense of perspective. We ought to, to be reinvigorated with a sense of awe for the God we are coming to worship. We are not coming to worship a God that we have figured out. And so there's a good reminder for us here. We would do well to follow the advice of this psalm and to lower our eyes a little bit. To maybe see some of the pride that's in our hearts because the only time we ever look down is when it's down our nose at someone else who doesn't know it like we do. To remember that there is so much about God that we don't know. And I think a church like ours may need a particular reminder about this because we value theology and doctrine so much. And I'm glad that that is a value of our church. I'm glad that we value theology and I'm glad that we value doctrine and I'm glad that we want to know what the Bible has to say about the God that we worship. Here's where the danger comes. The danger comes when the people who love theology and love loved doctrine feel like at some point that they've got it mostly figured out now. None of us would say that, right? None of us would say we've got God figured out. But our actions and our attitudes tell on us. When we look across the aisle at brothers and sisters in Christ in other denominations or other Christian traditions with an ever so slight air of superiority that they haven't quite formulated it like we have. They don't know and understand the Holy Spirit the way we do. They don't understand the doctrines of grace the way we do. They don't sing the songs we sing. We would not sing those songs. They don't have an understanding of the church the way we do. I'm not saying that we shouldn't try to strive to do the best we can to please God in all of those areas. Church, let us not think that the God of the universe, the infinite, eternal, pre-existent, omniscient, all-knowing, everywhere present God can somehow be contained in the smallness of our theological libraries or our denominational ghettos. I think what all of us often need on occasion is the kind of encounter with God that Job had. I'm not saying I want to have the encounter with God that Job had. But Job is undergoing serious suffering and he's asking questions about God throughout this book. And I just happen to be reading through the book of Job in my own Bible reading plan uh, right now. And One of the interesting things that Job does is he says at one point that he wishes that someone could find God so that he could take God to court, basically. 
lay out, lay out the charges. Because Job's got some questions that he wants answers for. And that doesn't mean that Job shouldn't be asking those questions or that we don't ask those questions when we're experiencing difficult times of suffering. But Job asks all these questions and then finally we get to chapter 38 and God appears to Job in a sense and says, dress, put your clothes on to stand before me. Dress up like a man because I've got some questions for you. Where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? Explain to me the cycle of the seasons. Why the sun comes up and then the moon comes up. Why do we have this cycle going? Explain to me, Job, how the oceans know where their boundaries. Have you ever walked in the deepest depths of the sea? Do you know all the stuff that's happening down there? We don't even know now what's happening down there. God asks him a series of questions that come in a flurry with all the fury of a UFC fighter. And Job finally says, you know what? I will lay my hand on my mouth. lot we don't know. Humility recognizes that God stubbornly refuses to fit the box we made for Him. I think the Apostle Paul understood this. The book of Romans is often referred to as his magnum opus, his explanation of the gospel. The, we get this, this full opening of the gospel like nowhere else in all of Scripture. But even Paul, after writing all of this, puts his pen down for a break at the end of chapter 11. And he says, oh, the depths of the wis- riches and wisdom and knowledge of God How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. This is a man who doesn't get done with Romans and feel like he had the last word. Or that he's got it all figured out. Or as David would put it, I don't occupy myself with things that are are too great. Too marvelous for me. David tells us what he does instead in verse 2. He says there in verse 2, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. I think the text here is specific with the imagery that it's giving us. It's, it's not a, a, a baby that's oblivious to everything going around it, but, but a child that has some awareness of what's going on around it. It's old enough to have an awareness of what's going on, but is still calm and content next to his mother. That's the picture that is being given to us. And I want to remind you, as I've already done on numerous occasions this morning, I want to remind you about who's writing this. Whose pen, as it were, this comes from. Because this is David. David is a warrior king. 
David is the guy that takes some supplies to his brothers at the front line and sees that there's a giant that's mocking the people of Israel day after day after day and says, so is anybody going to fight the guy or what? What are we doing here? It's impertinent. And he says, finally, well, I'll take a shot at it. Well, what are your qualifications, David? Well, there was the time I killed a bear with my bare hands, and the lion, I killed a lion too. Okay. Well, you're going to need some armor. That's not going to work. How about a sword? Not my style. I'm going to take a slingshot. And he defeats him. This is the warrior king of who's going out and fighting battles for Israel, and they're singing songs about him when he comes back. Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. This is a guy that goes on raiding parties. This is a guy who, who, who has, is in charge of these 30 guys called his mighty men. I wish the Bible told us a little bit more about these guys, but basically what the Bible does tell us is it rehearses their kill count. I mean, these guys are warriors, and David's in charge of those guys. What I'm trying to tell you here is that David is not a white-collar king. He's not a career politician. He's not somebody who has been raised up in an ivory palace who has no connection with the real world. This is a guy that can fight, that's got scars, that's been in battles, that then says something like this, I've quieted my soul within me like a small child with his mother. If our definitions of masculinity can't account for both of those things, you got the wrong definition. But that's another sermon. When David humbles himself before God in worship, he is able to achieve a calm and a quiet for his soul. When you've humbled yourself before God, the God that you know and yet know so little of, the God who is working in your life in specific ways that you can see and in so many ways that you have no idea what he's doing, or where he's going with it. When you humble yourself before that version of God, not the one that fits our formulations in our box, what does that look like? What does it look like when your soul is calmed, quieted itself? a small child with its mother. It looks like dependence rather than independence. When we quiet our souls before God, we become free to live in ways that acknowledge and even celebrate the fact that we are totally dependent on Him. Every single one of us lives in a dependent reality. 
most of us refuse to acknowledge it or act as if it all depends on us. What else does it look like? Well, it looks like a state of tranquility rather than a state of franticness, if franticness is a word. Forgive me, it's my first Sunday back. I'm just going to make words up. We live our lives frantically, moving from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next. We have plans, we have backup plans, we have backup plans for our backup plans. We live like the God who provides the wardrobe for the lilies of the field will fail to do the same for us, even though He has promised to do so. We live like we are on our own down here, that the danger that lurks around every corner, and there is danger that lurks around every corner, but we live like the danger that lurks around every corner is going to pounce on us if we do not maintain a constant state of diligence. The child with his mother is not worried about those things. He has a tranquility that comes from assurance that his needs will be met. He is not trying to constantly calculate his next move because he doesn't need to. This summer, we made a quick day trip over to Chicago from where we were staying. And there were several things in the city that we wanted to see, and so it was my responsibility to find out where we were going to park and how we were going to get to all the things that we were going to see without walking 47 miles and killing everyone. So I'm walking through the city, and I've got some familiarity with Chicago because I've been there many times, but I've got some familiarity with it, yet I've still got my phone out advertising to everyone that I have no idea where I'm going. And I'm, I'm following the little dots, and then, you know, the GPS signal and that, that, the, the triangle starts going like this, and you're like, ah, am I supposed to be going, no, it's, no, it's going this way, okay. But you want to appear confident while you're doing all that. So you stride confidently. I'm looking at the road signs to make sure we're turning the places that we need to go. I'm making sure that everybody's together, that our youngest is holding somebody's hand, that I know whether it's one way or, or both ways. We're getting everywhere we need to go. But then we met a friend for lunch that lives in Chicago. And after lunch was over, our friend volunteered to walk us to the next place that we were going. The way I walked to the next place was totally different than the way that I'd walked to lunch. The way I walked to the next place, I, wasn't think, I didn't have my phone out. It was in my pocket. I wasn't looking at the road, at the, at the street signs. I wasn't looking at whether anything was was, was uh, uh, one way or, or both ways. I was casual. I was unhurried. I was having a conversation. I was not paying a lick of attention. You know why? I didn't have to. I was with somebody that knew the way, and I could just walk next to him, and I'd get there without having to worry about the whole thing. I think that's God is asking us to do with Him. 
It's not that God is against planning. Plenty of verses in the Bible that talk about the benefit of the planning. It's not that God is against looking forward into the future and trying to make the best decisions that we can. But the truth of the matter is, we don't even know where we're going. Much less how to get there. And yet we are so frantically protecting ourselves from what's around the next corner rather than just calming our souls like a child with his mother and walking next to our father. It looks like tranquility rather than a frantic pace. If I could summarize it this way, I'd I'd say this. When a small child is calm and quiet next to his mother, he does not feel the burden of providing for himself. He does not feel the responsibility of needing to protect himself. He does not feel the pressure of needing to prove himself. And he does not feel the need to police everyone else. You're not walking next to mother the way I am. we approach God for worship, we would do well to remember that there are some things that are simply too marvelous for us. Rather than getting ourselves tied up in knots trying to figure it all out, taking a deep breath, calming our souls before Him. This is, in fact, exactly, I think, what Jesus was getting at when he said this in Mark chapter 10 and verse 15. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, we've heard that a thousand times, and so I'm afraid we've got a little filter in there in our minds that flips it around a little bit and applies this to people who are of a weaker constitution than us. God does not say, Jesus does not say that this approach to God, this childish approach to God is for those who are weaker among us. He tells us it's the only approach to God He accepts. If you want to enter the kingdom of God, you're going to have to enter it like a child. And There may be people here today who are far from God's kingdom for precisely this reason. I'll trust God when He explains Himself. Because I got questions. We got questions. I'd like to know a full understanding of the problem of evil. I'd like to understand a, a full reconciliation of God and science. I'd love all that stuff, and we should pursue all of that stuff. But some of us are far from the kingdom of God because our, our position is, I'll trust when I know, and I understand all this, and I just want to tell you, that is a broken strategy because you won't ever know, not all of it. Some of us will trust God when He tells us exactly how this is going to go. I pull up the destination on my phone, and then I hit that little button that says, show me the whole route, all the turns. I'll trust God when He shows me all the turns. Let's, let's see where we're going here. 
God doesn't give us that. God asks, even demands, that we trust Him without knowing the turns. You see, it's not trust if you know all the turns. God says, you come to me like a child, you trust me, and I'll get us where we're going. And I'm not going to give you the whole thing. You couldn't handle it if I did. If you're here far from the kingdom of God this morning, I want you to understand that Christians are not people who have read the Bible, given God a strict examination, and said, okay, I approve of all this. God does the stuff I think He ought to do in every situation. I understand everything that God is doing, and I'm ready to move forward. God does things we don't understand, can't explain, and frankly, sometimes disagree with. same God says, you're going to have to trust me in this walk when you don't know. The people who enter the kingdom of God are people who have lowered their eyes, calmed their souls, humbled themselves, repented of our sins of self-sufficiency, I'll provide for myself, I'll be enough for myself. I'll make my own way for myself. I'll protect myself. We repent of those sins, and then we come to Jesus in faith. In fact, you can come to Jesus with that kind of faith, like a child where you're sitting right now. And if you need to talk to somebody about that, we would love to talk more about it with you. The only way any of us are received into God's kingdom is through that childlike faith. I'm almost done said at the beginning, there's a connection in this psalm between humility, which you've seen in verses 1 and 2, and hope, which is called, we're called to hope. We call each other to hope when we read the psalm together. And that's what I want us to see in verse 3, the call to hope. David turns from addressing God to addressing the people. Those who are singing this psalm of ascent turn from addressing God to addressing each other. We turn from addressing God to exhorting and encouraging each other. And the thing that we encourage each other with this, put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord this time forward to forever. That's a blanket statement. Put your hope in the Lord from this time forth and then do it forever. When we're proud, we can't do that. The proud heart, the proud person finds hope in what he has, who he is, what he does, what he knows. It's a hope that's God plus all the stuff I'm bringing to the table. The hymn, if we were to change the line a little bit, we would sing, my hope is built on nothing less than what I know and my resourcefulness. That's just facts. But in contrast, the humble person who has calmed and quieted her soul 
is a person who is now free and open to hope in something outside herself. I don't have to know what's around the corner. I don't have to prepare myself for every contingency. I can approach God once again rather than a thing to be dissected in a science lab and then stuck in a shelf in a library. I can approach Him as the living God who puts awe in my heart again. If I could summarize the psalm in one sentence, I'd put it this way. The humble heart is the hopeful heart. And that heart is filled with hope because it does not lift its eyes up too high. It does not occupy itself with things too great. It calms, quiets itself like a small child next to his mother. Let's pray and ask God to calm our souls in that way. Lord, we want to thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in real ways. That there is much of you that can be known and that when we sing a song like, I want to know you, that prayer can be answered. Lord, we also come to you humbly recognizing that our greatest attempts to understand are but straw. So I pray that you would help us to adopt an attitude of humility towards you, towards others, so that we are able to to calm and quiet our frantic souls, so that we can be at your side the way a child would be at the side of his mother, so that we can have hope. And if there is someone here who has not entered the kingdom of God, would you open the eyes of their heart to trust and believe this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.